talking about now? Grand Green Acres. Oh, yeah. There are only four episodes that have survived so far. Do you have any Judy Canovas? I do so. Yeah, maybe you can add that on. Whatever you got. I mean, I don't think there's, there's a limited supply too, right? Oh, there's a bounce. There are a lot of them out there. There's a lot of them out there. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Well, I didn't know that. Judy Canova was a very talented singer. I mean, she could sing country and she could sing <laughs> opera. I was going to tell you, her range is incredible. It was. She, she could hit such high notes, and, and it's amazing what she could hit. And by the way, um, Patricia, I will be putting in the mail on Monday a date with Judy and um, two DVDs of four movies, two movies on each of The Great Killer's Sleep. Oh, wow. Thank you. Hal Perry, yeah, starring Hal Perry. Yeah, so, yeah, you you receive four movies and a whole bunch of a date with Judy. Uh, well, Big John and Sparky are on their way to you, and I put in a CD with the I Love a Mystery and I Love Adventure that I have in my files for Bill. That's sweet of you. Bill will love that. My goodness, anybody who likes a, a show, if I have them, my goodness, I'm happy to share. So if you can put Green Acres and whatever, whatever, and... And Judy Canova, I, I appreciate that. I would be happy to do that. Yeah, and 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 listen, um, I um want you to know, um, Walden, um, University of Hawaii volleyball team, last night, not tonight now. Yeah. Last night, Friday night. Yep. Uh, beat USC in five, and USC is rated number one as far as volleyball. Not bad at all. Wow. Wait, wait, wait. Yeah, yeah. Gosh, but we lost in three tonight. <laughs> well, listen. <laughs> it sounds like the win was bigger than the loss. Uh, yeah, there you go. Well, anyway. Um, so what have you been doing the last two weeks or so? How you been? Well, we've been fine. Good? Uh, yeah. Still, still breathing. But <laughs> I was fascinated by that show today. I don't know. I never ever heard of that show before, you know, and that Green Acres show thing, and and um, it really was funny, you know. Yeah. How they moved to this farm and yeah. the wife saw the place and it was all run down <laughs> and everything else, cried like a baby and oh, it was so funny. So I said, I gotta talk to Walter. I gotta find out about this show. And uh, I'm glad you guys. It's a great show. It reminds me a lot of uh, the Rocks Radio show called Egg and I. But it didn't last very long. No, right? no. No, but it had a great run on TV with Eddie Albert. I was just going to say with um, with Green Acres. Yeah. Um, was it, should I say, with Ava Gabor? Ava. Ava Gabor and Ava. Eddie Albert, right. who did the Green Acres on television, and that was... Ava Gabor. <laughs> and the song was written by my friend, late friend, Vic Missy. So he made a pretty good killing on that. Yeah. Well, anyway, you guys. Uh, so, so next by next week, I'm the Pony Express. <laughs> Bring my hay. I have to start collecting hay again. Oh, your hay. Yeah. Maybe a sugar foster, sugar coated, or whatever. You know. Hey, okay. I'm a sugar cube. I can bring a sugar cube. There you go. Yeah. That might be fun. Yeah. The two of you. We leave you with a fine aloha. 
Aloha to you, Aloha. too. Aloha. Thanks for calling, Ron. I was worried about you. I didn't think we were going to talk to you tonight. I guess he went off to the... My goodness, Pacific when Ron says Ocean. Aloha, he means it. Yeah. He went off to the Pacific Ocean. Uh-huh. I'm glad he called in. Yeah, checking in with the family. Uh-huh. So I had something else for you here. What else did I have for you? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, this is a fun thing. Mm-hmm. On April 9th, 1859? Yes. Mark Twain got his steamboat captain's license. Oh, right. I did not know he was a steamboat captain, and I didn't even know you needed a license to run one mm -hmm. of those things in 1859. Well, that's how I call me guy's name. Well, I knew that. Okay. Yeah. Um, his, his real name was Samuel Clemens. But I didn't realize that... Um, and, and you know what a twain is? Yes. Okay. What? Well, you know, so that's good enough for me. Okay. <laughs> I can do that. Um, and this one was fun for me. This is 1953, and April 10th, I, I got two dates here, because mm -hmm. we always fall into two dates here. We so do. April 10th, 1953, the first 3D movie was released. Do you know what it was? Uh, was it directed by Art Schrober? I don't know. Um, released by Warner Brothers. Mm-hmm. 53. I'll read the description and maybe, maybe that... Well, yeah, it I, just blew me away what yeah. this was. It was the first movie from a major motion picture studio to be shot using the three-dimensional or stereoscopic mm -hmm. film process and one of the first horror films to be shot in color. Yeah. I think it's October's movie, Devil Something. It was The House of Wax with Vincent Price. Ah, uh, okay, wrong. Okay. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. I, I just... It's not, I mean, I would have expected some stupid science fiction thing, you know, the, the, the grotesque monster is going to jump in your seats, wear your 3D glasses, but it was some, was a horror film with Vincent Price. I thought that was kind of fun. Very nice. Now, Ken Goff will be really in tune with this one. He will have known this. And by the way, the song that you played earlier, and you asked about Linda. Uh-huh. Nobody answered the question. I know. So you'll have to play it again next week. That's true. We, okay. uh, we can only play the mystery guest thing, too, next week, too. Yeah, we, well, you'll have to, because nobody called nobody in called and answered in. it. Okay, mm -hmm. April 10th, 1970, Paul McCartney announced, finally, after three years of knocking each other around, figuratively, Paul McCartney announced that the Beatles were finally breaking up for good. Mm -hmm. I definitely the uh, Ken and Mike Candy department, no doubt about oh, is, that. Oh, is Mike Candy a big Beatles fan? Oh, yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah. I mean, Ken Goff uh, is um, yeah. the Waltons and the Beatles. He's probably got some other things in there, but those are the, those are the two that just really stand out. Um, 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 well, we know about what happened. Well, ending the war. Hmm? I think we're probably eventually going to have Earl Hamner on. He was the creator of the Walton. Oh, really? We're producing his audio book. Uh-huh. 
So I think that could be something you and I are going to be handling, Patricia. That would be fun. Yeah. That would be fun. Yeah. I do have some quotes for today. What you got? Um, these will make you smile, and then maybe we can go to a show? Sure. Okay, because it's, it's coming up on 5 o'clock now. Yeah, because Patricia's looking at the clock, because she got to watch her TV show at 6. I have to watch NCIS at 6 <laughs> o'clock. So I've, got, I've got a little bit of cushion room here. <laughs> Gosh, I like that show. It's a good show. Really well done. Okay, the quote for the day. Stress is when you wake up screaming and you realize you haven't fallen asleep yet. Oh, that's good. All right. I intend to live forever. So far, so good. <laughs> this one is really special. Mm -hmm. I like this. If Barbie is so popular, why do you have to buy her friends? Oh. That's good. Uh-huh. Um, God put me on Earth to accomplish a certain number of things. Right now, I'm so far behind, I will live for it. <laughs> it just seems to fit. Yeah. Dogs come when they're called. Cats take a message and get back to you later. Oh, that's why we love cats. Yeah, I, I really do. I love cats. Yeah. Kitties are cute. Mm -hmm. And they're cuddly, and you don't have to take them for a walk. You do have to empty their boxes, however. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well. Okay, are you in the market for, for a show? I sure am. Okay, well, this show is from 1951. Mm -hmm. So I looked up, I did my homework, I looked up 1951 stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, let me see, I think I have 1941 stuff. Nope, 1940 and 42. Okay, in 1951, a car was approximately $1,800. Ten years before, in 1940, I'll say ten years, actually 11 years, it was $800. It's now up to $1,500. Gasoline. Now, this did not change as much as I thought it would be. In 1940, gasoline was 18 cents a gallon. In 1951, it was 27 cents a gallon. Now, that's not a huge increase for post-war. I didn't think. About third. I didn't think so anyway. Okay. All right. A house. A house, a house, a house. Uh -huh. 1940 was average $6,500, and in 1951, it was up to $16,000. That's a jump. That's a big jump. Yeah. Now, our minimum wage between uh, within that 10-year went from... 30 cents an hour to 75 cents an hour. That was a pretty big jump. But what just cracks me up is no matter what year we look at, the postage stamp was three cents. The postage stamp was three cents. It must have stayed, it must stayed at three cents forever. It might, we're already up to 1951. I'll have to go back and yeah. see when the, it finally changed. But all through the war, it was three cents. Mm -hmm. After the war, it was three cents. We're up to 1951 in the Korean War. It's three cents. They must have done volume. <laughs> volume. Uh -huh. So anyway, that's where we were in 1951. So are we ready for a show? We sure are. Okay, this is the show that I always have three questions about. So whoever is still with us, here's a heads up for you. If you email an answer to me, that is correct, I will trade you a correct answer for some radio shows. Does that sound fair? That's an awesome deal. You okay, and I'm going to give you the questions. 
when I finish the description, and your answers get sent to FloridaWriter at Hotmail.com. That's Florida, the state, writer, W-R-I-T-E-R, FloridaWriter at Hotmail.com. And I'm going to trade one correct answer for some radio shows, which is a deal and a half, I think. I think. It's a super deal. See, I knew you were gone. I knew you were on the other side of the room. I can tell. I can <laughs> tell. Okay, we've got a show from April 10th, 1951. The name of the show is The Gas Bill. Uh, at the beginning of this show, Harlow Wilcox, of course, does his really, and they got better and better with time, the introductions that were always fun. And he said, anyone who has a box camera can take a picture of Fibber. So my question would have been, and this is not uh, uh, one for the radio show, I was going to ask who knows what a box camera is, so maybe I'll save that one for next week. The premise of the show, Fibber is a crazy person because he got a $16.23 gas bill, and he is determined to get his just due. This is an outrageous bill. He's going to find somebody who will fix it, and just do is exactly what he gets. Now, there's a character in this show I don't remember hearing anywhere else. I've, I've listened to a lot of shows, but this is the only place I've ever heard a character, Kitty McDonald. And she and Molly get into a verbal tangle of insults back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. It is a verbal catfight. And it's quite remarkable to listen to because it's out of character for Molly. I mean, you know. I want to one if, if old man McDonald's wife. Oh, from the bank? Mm-hmm. Kitty McDonald. That'd be my first thing. Remember old man McDonald? Well, that sure sounds like it. Yeah. I, I, I listened to the show pretty carefully, and I didn't hear old man McDonald mentioned in relation to her. But, boy, that sure would make sense. Why would they have a McDonald, you know, with two different... If they weren't associated with each yeah, other, it would be kind of foolish. I get the first name I get throw out. Yeah. Old man, well, anyway, here's Kitty McDonald and mm-hmm. the two of them. I, Molly would once in a while do a one-upsmanship with Uppington or um, Mrs. Carstairs, but not like this. I mean, it was just back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. It was like, you know, I, I would have jumped in the middle and say, wait a minute, wait a minute, you're going to come to blows pretty soon. So it was kind of interesting to listen to. Anyway, when we get finished with this show, your questions would have been, who knows what a box camera is? Question number one. Second, who was the woman Molly got into a snit with? And the third... Who was the sponsor for this show? What company sponsored this show? So we've got coming up the gas bill from April 10th, 1951. And that means I have to say goodnight to everybody. Thank you for making it such a great show. And for so many of you to call in, had a super time. We had Chuck from Schenectady for the first time. What a great show. So I say goodnight. Goodnight, Walden. Goodnight, my dear. Thank you for a great show. Thanks for being with me. And here we go. The Pop News Program with Bubba McGee and Molly.
from a different source, so let's throw a little music in there while you, while we're waiting for the computer to sh- jump up. Why don't we get through this? Hold on, everybody. We'll be right with you really soon. Hold on, Patricia. Testing one, two, three, four. Dance, ballerina, dance. And do your pirouette in rhythm with your aching heart. Dance, ballerina, dance. 
Okay, we're gonna pick you up, bring you over here to the computer. And I see here. Windows M. I. Desktop. Folder view. List view. Internet Center. Windows Internet Explorer. Connecting dot dot dot. And we're gonna, we're gonna try to point it from a Yesterday point. USA schedule. Yeah, player and home page. New tab page. Page has four frames, six headings, and 51 links. The yesterday UP programs. Oh, leaving menus. Start button to open. Press enter. Outlook Express address book list view list view. Avpro 3 at Verizon.net. One of 60. To move to items, use the arrow keys. List view. Outlook Express message attachment. Jerry and Jay Hickett. Attachment. Craig Oppen. Nathan Bedfinitz. Bruadal. Janet Walt. Attachment. Tim Nofler. Nelson Dak. Bruadal. Turner Clap. Attachment Lawrence Alp, Tim Nofler, Walden Heap, Facebook, Mike Case, Help Dash C, Larry Gas, Attachment Sandy Heap, Attachment Sandy, Donald Pitt, Attachment Jerry Deep, Donald Pitchford, Josh Salt, Attachment Lawrence Alp, Donald Pitch, Dwayne Kills, Bruin Ald, All Dot, Mike Casey invites to ARSC Performance 4 slash 2 slash 2011, com left bracket FOTR underline committee right shift tab, folder level 2, send item, deleted tab, list view. Out, Dwayne Kilstra, Tim Nofler, Dwayne, Lynn Wong, Dwayne, Tim No, Old Dot, Peter Shant, Harlan Ball, Radio Arc, Florida Writer, Dash, Mary McDonald, Attachment, Florida Writer, Dash, Saturday Show, Enter. From colon, Florida Writer, Hi Sir, Hi Sir, Hi Sir, Tab, From Col Tab, Date Col Tab, To Colon Tab, Subject Tab, Attachment, Enter. Mail attack open by enter attachments colon list view FM 510,410 the pet milk program with Fibber McGee and Molly. The first evaporated milk, pet milk, presents Fibber McGee and Molly with Bill Thompson, Arthur Q. Bryan, Dick Legrand, Cliff Arquette, Gene Vanderpile, Tyler McVeigh, Ken Christie, and me, Harlow Wilcox. The show is written by Don Quinn and Phil Leslie and directed. Freddie McGee, 14th and Oak Street. <laughs> you see? So it is. Yeah. Good. Good night. <laughs> Good night, all. The first evaporated milk, pet milk, brings you Silver McGee and Molly each week at this time. Be with us again next Tuesday night, won't you? If quite unexpectedly someone left you several hundred dollars, what would you do with the money? Well, that's the happy question that faces the Carter family in Pet Milk's Story of the Week next Saturday morning on the Mary Lee Taylor program. And what happens the minute the news gets round makes this one of the most entertaining stories of the year. Be sure to hear it. And listen, too, for the recipe of the week on the same Pet Milk program, the recipe for an economical main dish called Frankfurter Roll-Ups. Easy to make and mighty good. Remember, for this big double feature, tune in your NBC station next Saturday morning for Mary Lee Taylor. Tomorrow, laugh with Groucho Marx. Stay tuned for Big Town on NBC.
Good night, everybody. We love you all. The party's over. It's time to call it a day. They've burst your pretty balloon and taken the Just make your mind up The piper must be paid The party's over The candles flicker and dim You danced and dreamed through the night it seemed to be right just being with him. Now you must wake up. All dreams must end. Take off your makeup. The party Can thrill me anymore. Faraway trips, seagoing ships, not half as thrilling as touching your lips. Nothing that can quite fulfill me anymore. Broadway shows, evening clothes, you have more glamour than any other. Once I used to dream of Paris.
everybody, it is Sunday night, April the 10th, year 2011, I'm Wally Shoes, hope you're all doing well out there, and we're going to, looking back upon a little bit of history tonight, but first we'll say our prayer, dear Lord, thank you for this opportunity of being on the station, with all the listeners supporters, thank you for Willie going home, thank you for everybody out there, Lord, we ask this in Jesus Christ's name, amen. On Tuesday, uh, will be the 66th anniversary when Franklin Delano Roosevelt passed away, April 12, 1945. And just in case people haven't noticed, the Civil War started on April 12, 1861. So we're on the 150th anniversary of that this Tuesday. But we're going to look back a little bit during the week of when Franklin Delano pa- passed away for a good hunk of the evening. And I want to start off with one of the early newscasts heard that night. And this one runs about five minutes long. So this is April 12, 1945. Ladies and gentlemen, here's a late bulletin from Washington. Truman has taken his oath as president of the United States. And now, ladies and gentlemen, the National Broadcasting Company takes you to Washington. We're speaking to you directly from the press and radio room of the White House in Washington, D.C. The Honorable Harry S. Truman was sworn in this evening as President of the United States by the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, Harlan F. Stone, at exactly nine minutes past seven o'clock, about two minutes ago. Mr. Truman uttered the words, I do, and became the 33rd President of the United States. The ceremony took place in the Cabinet Room of the White House, and uh, attending that ceremony were members of the Cabinet and members of the Congress who had arrived here in the past hour and a half or so. As I told you, Harlan F. Stone uh, administered the oath of office, and Harry S. Truman is now the 33rd President of the United States. Here in the press room of the White House, there are perhaps some 50 newsmen and radio men, all of them either working or running to telephones or trying to get to telephones to spread the news to the nation that about two and a half minutes ago, Harry S. Truman became President of the United States, the 33rd President. At the present moment, there is no other vice president being uh, elected to office or being assigned to office, and that office, as I understand it, will remain vacant for the president. And I would like for a moment to put on the air and speak to you a veteran news reporter, a man who has been at the White House for many years and who understands all that goes on here at the White House, Mr. Tom Reynolds. Tom, would you take over for a second? Everyone in Washington is very shocked and very sorrow, sorry indeed. They're witnessing at this moment the end of an era. The, death of the, pre- the events that followed the death of the president at the eve of his greatest triumph, the triumph in war and uh, what the president and many people here in Washington would believe the triumph in peace to occur on April 25th at San Francisco. The press room here at the White House where we have been covering President Roosevelt for so many years is in complete turmoil with reporters flashing the news of the oath-taking of the new president around the world, running back and forth to the cabinet room where Harry Truman of Missouri is now spending the first few moments of his administration. Chief Justice of the United States, Mr. Stone, who administered the oath, has just walked out of the cabinet room. It was that same Chief Justice of the United States who on January 20th administered the oath to President Roosevelt for his history-making fourth term. Outside the White House are crowds of people jamming up against the iron gates. The uh, sergeants of the military police are uh, keeping order the White House guards, all with very long faces, out of sorrow and respect for the man they serve so long, are beginning to 
canal the traffic down historic Pennsylvania Avenue. Uh, the news here has come so fast that no one has had an opportunity adequately to collect their thoughts. In the next few minutes, uh, it may be possible that we will have an opportunity to see the new president, Mr. Truman. But in the meantime, he has said merely that he had, is going to attempt to carry on as the president would have wanted him to carry on. I'll uh, turn you back now to Mr. Banghart. Thank you, Tom Reynolds of the Chicago Sun. Ladies and gentlemen, approximately four and a half minutes ago, Harry S. Truman was sworn in as the 33rd president of the United States. And exactly as a matter of fact, at nine minutes past seven o'clock tonight in the cabinet room of the White House. Word has just reached me that Mr. and Mrs. Truman, I should say the president of the United States and his wife, have left the cabinet room and they are now in the main part of the White House. It's interesting to note that Harry S. Truman came here tonight as vice president of the United States as a visitor. He is now making the White House his home. I would like to just make a brief resume of what has been happening here in the press and radio room of the White House for the past three hours. I wish you could see the faces of some of these newspaper men who have covered the White House, radio men who have covered the White House for the past... Ladies and gentlemen, we return you to our studios in New York. Ladies and gentlemen, the National Broadcasting Company has brought you correspondent W.W. W. Chaplin in Paris, Lowell Thomas in Luxembourg, Morgan Beatty, Ken Banghart, and Tom Reynolds from Washington, as well as Elmer Peterson, and you've heard from Don Hollenbeck and H.V. Kaltenborn here in New York. This is the National Broadcasting Company. Okay, so that's one of the early newscasts. Now, okay, move over, pick up another one, and continue. Get a pretty good summary of what happened that day. So, here's another newscast. Here's David Wills, who has just returned from the White House. Over at the White House, the flag is at half-mast for a dead president. The silent crowds are beginning to line the sidewalks along the park, opposite the Pennsylvania Avenue entrance to the White House, but the sidewalk in front of the railings is once more guarded by military police. A few minutes ago, Steve Haley, who for so long was the president's assistant and press secretary, and Dr. Ross McIntyre, Told us how the news came suddenly from Warm Springs that the president had fainted at about two o'clock Eastern time today while he was having some sketches made for a portrait. He'd been his usual self this morning and gone about the normal business that he's allowed to do when he's resting at Warm Springs. He'd had no hidden illness, no operations during the past month to account for this sudden illness. But obviously the illness was serious. Dr. Howard Gruen, commander in the Navy attached to the president's staff, was with him and Dr. James Poland of Atlanta was hurriedly summoned. At half past four this afternoon, Dr. Gruen in Warm Springs was talking to Dr. McIntyre in the White House and hurriedly cut off the call and called back in a few minutes to say that the president had passed away at 4.35 of a terrible hemorrhage. At that time, Mrs. Roosevelt was at a meeting at the Salisbury Club in Washington and Steve Early called her and asked her to come quickly to the White House. And in a few minutes, Dr. McIntyre and Steve Early told her what had happened. And when she'd composed herself, she said, I am no, I am more sorry for the people of the country and the world than I am for us. Steve Early had also asked the vice president to come over quickly and quietly. The vice president had been on his way to the speaker's office. And when Harry Truman arrived, he was taken up to the second floor to Mrs. Roosevelt's sitting room. And she told him the news. The president had passed away. The vice president, so soon to be sworn in as president, asked at once, what can I do? And Mrs. Roosevelt turned the question back to him. Well, tell us what we can do. Is there any way we can help you? 
Afterwards, the vice presidents crossed from the residential rooms of the White House to the executive offices and met the cabinet to break the news to them. The chief justice was summoned, and as soon as he could arrive was to swear in Harry Truman as president of the United States. The secretary of state crossed in two minutes from the state department. He will issue the proclamation of the president's death this evening. The vice president, or rather the president, even Jonathan Daniels found it hard to switch so soon from vice president to president Truman. The vice president says he would rather not at the moment make any statement to the newsman, but he intended to carry on as the president would have done. And for that reason, he was asking the cabinet to stay on the job. And that's a summons to the people as well as to the cabinet. We must finish the job in hand. We cannot leave the job until war is won and peace is secure. And as a symbol of the need to go on with the job just a few minutes ago, the State Department announced that there would be no change in the date of the San Francisco conference. And now here is Bortage with more news from the White House. Bortage talking. I just returned from another trip to the White House. I soon I left after the swearing of the president, the new president of the United States. I came back along a very quiet street, down under the elms that were touched by the last rays of the setting sun. And I couldn't help thinking as I came along of a, of a line from Omar Khayyam that's been running in my head. It's but a tent where he takes his one day's rest, the sultan to the realm of death address, the sultan passes. The dark barrage strikes. Who prepares it for another guest? Another guest has come in. He stood there with his wife and daughter between him and the Chief Justice of the United States and took the oath. He stood in the cabinet room where the cabinet members hastily called at assembled and with them the leaders of the House and Senate. They made that group against the window looking out over the historic... Washington. After the the Chief Justice came out and spoke to us a moment, repeated for us the old, so familiar, but fortunately so seldom repeated under circumstances like these. And then Secretary of Commerce Wallace came out and we spoke to him a moment. All he could say was that the ceremony was very simple and very impressive. It is impressive when we think of the terrific responsibility that's fallen a heavy mantle on the shoulders of the new president. The people were standing outside as we came out. They watched the cabinet members leaving in their cars. Stood there quietly, silently, lined along the edge of Victoria Lafayette Square, looking into the White House empty of its tenants. I remember the last time that I came past the White House when crepe was on the door. It was the time of the death of Mrs. Woodrow Wilson. And I saw in the, in the eyes of these people gazing in at that open door for people going in and out and we could see the lights burning inside. I seemed to see in their eyes that same look of reverence of respect and a morning that I saw in the people's faces on that occasion. I remember I was walking by there with Eddie Hood, the head of the Associated Press Bureau then, and automatically as he passed, he lifted his hat. 
I think America everywhere tonight is bowing in tribute to Franklin Delano Roosevelt. And I think that there goes there going well wishes of the whole world for this man who has now taken over the responsibility. He is a man who has not been tried in the fierce fires of responsibility that a wartime president must face. We know he's a good man. We know he's a sincere man. We know he's an indefatigable worker. And only a week ago, I sat with him in his office, and he told me, frankly, that he was doing the one thing that he believed he could to further the plan of international peace. That he was doing his best to act as liaison between the president and the Senate. And I believe in these last weeks, in these last months, he has thoroughly absorbed the ideas and the policies of the president. And as he promised to do in the few words he spoke, before he was congratulated by those who stood about him when he took his oath, I believe that we may count on him to carry out those policies, as he believes them to have been in the mind of the president. That's all, and thanks very much. This is the Blue Network of the American Broadcasting Company. Okay, we're going to move back over to NBC and pick up a five-minute new cash behold in the morning. Next day, April the 13th, 1945, Wednesday morning. 12.55 a.m. Eastern War Time. W.E.A.F. New York. Good morning. This is Robert St. John speaking from the NBC Newsroom in New York. It's Friday now. It's morning. Thursday is over. Black Thursday, a sad day for the world of men who would be free. But that day is over. Now most of the world sleeps. In a cottage on the top of a hill in Georgia, one man who went to sleep this afternoon sleeps forever. Millions who were grief-stricken at the news of the death of Franklin Delano Roosevelt have now gone to bed. In Washington, a new president, Harry S. Truman from Missouri, is resting up so he can face the arduous duties he must start facing just eight hours from now. Members of his cabinet sleep. They, later today, will have to shoulder many of the problems which their chief was wont to share with them. But often Europe and often islands in the Pacific, there are men who do not sleep. Soldiers, sailors, and Marines, men of the armed forces. Most of them, thanks to the wonders of radio, know already what happened on a hilltop in Georgia today. And what was their reaction? Well, battlefront correspondents say it was almost unanimous. He was their commander-in-chief. Politics never had mattered much with them. He was their commander-in-chief. They gave him much of the credit for their recent successes. They knew that it was he who had done a majority of the planning. They respected him. One extreme reaction is seen in the story of an American tank sergeant in Paris who heard the news and made a beeline for the headquarters of his commanding officer and asked to be returned immediately to the most dangerous of all the fronts. He said with feeling, I voted for him four different times. Since I can't vote for him a fifth time, the least I can do is to go back and fight for him. From London, just a few minutes ago, there came a report that Winston Churchill may consider flying here for the funeral this weekend. There isn't any question but that he is as broken-hearted as anyone abroad over the president's death. They had met many times. They'd worked together in a perfect team. There never was any hint 
that they hadn't always been able to iron out any differences which arose between them as friends. They had been planning the peace together. But now a new figure enters the scene. Now it will be Stalin Churchill and Harry S. Truman, who has often been described as the one man in America who had a knowledge of the entire war program, second only to that of Mr. Roosevelt himself. Another world figure who expressed deep feeling over Mr. Roosevelt's death was Pope Pius XII. We learned tonight that about one week ago, Pope Pius asked that President Roosevelt be told that he was praying for him, and especially for his health. Those who grieved during the evening were not all humans. A little black Scotty named Fala also mourned for his master. Fala, the president's pet, had accompanied Mr. Roosevelt to Warm Springs, Georgia. On long afternoon rides in the...